Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, here today with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph. Kizzy and I will be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Julia Putnam is the principal of Detroit's James and Grace Lee Boggs School. The school was named after legendary Detroit activists, James and Grace Lee Boggs. The school offers a place-based education program, which is committed to school community partnerships to develop students as citizen stewards of healthy ecological social systems. It emphasizes learning through participation and service projects for the school and local community, often focused on eco-justice. Participation in service projects for local community is nothing new to Putnam. She was the first young person to sign up for the Detroit Summer Youth Program movement founded in 1992. It was led by James and Grace Lee Boggs, along with a coalition of local and national activists and organizations. The experience of working with this broad spectrum of people challenged some of the perceptions Putnam had picked up as a youngster. This interview was a reunion of sorts, as Detroit Summer is where Julia and I first met. Julia, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing really well today. Okay. Well, the reason, you know, I, I say that this today is like really, really special for me because I have, I mean, you know how you, how you like if you were like to throw out a link of your legacy, I see that. And like I would say like, you know, Julia was my first daughter. <laughs> Kizzy is my second daughter. And, you know, when I when I think about, you know, <laughs> the, the parts of me that I like to see go on, that, to go on and on and on and on, I see it in you too. And so to have the two of you here on the phone with me is just, as they say, heaven on earth. Oh, that's so sweet, Michelle. It really does feel full circle. It, this is, it's an honor for me too. Uh-huh. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Thank so, you. Uh, I mean, because I just... You know, you two are you two are the future, and um, and and you're going to talk about something that I'm really, really happy to talk about, which is like education and our kids and our community. And you know, Julia, I know you get tired of saying hearing it, but um, in case you don't know, the very first volunteer for Detroit Summer was Julia, and you know, 
And I will say, and I'm going to borrow from Adrienne Marie Brock. I was talking to Adrienne, and Adrienne said, like, like um, getting involved with Detroit Summer changed the trajectory of her life. And I could say the mm-hmm. same thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can tell people, I still remember the day that they were having the International Women's Festival at um, UD Mercy. Mm. I'm coming in the door. Grace is leaving. Grace says, we're getting ready to do something, and you need to be a part of it. And this is where we're going to meet. And, you know, and that was like before. And we were going through all of this stuff, and it's like, is it going to work? Is it going to work? And it Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. And that first year, here's these kids, one of them being, you know, my my daughter from another mother <laughs> was Julia, and and that that whole first group and at, to me like we all grew together, you know, yeah. we we really grew together. I think I learned as much from Julia as as hopefully she learned from me. Particularly a love for Garth Brooks, you know. Mm. <laughs> Uh, but I think that music yeah. is part of music. It was part of what we did. You know, there was music, there was laugh, there was you know, mm. there was poop parties. You know, a uh, I don't know if I've ever told you about how we would go get horse poop and they would throw poop at each other. I mean, but hey, it was all good. Oh wow! I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, we we have. I mean, Julia and I have a history. <laughs> A deep-rooted history, you know, in the soil. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's I don't ever get tired of hearing that I was the first person to sign up. It is really one of the great honors of my life, and and one of the best things that I've ever done. Um, not knowing that it would be good, but not knowing just how pressing it would be, I had no idea where it was going to take me. I just knew it was important to do. Um, And, yeah, it led me to you, and I think that it's one of the things that I think are important for young people are to have adults in their lives, not just their parents and not just their family members, but outside of their family pouring into them. I just think... In society, we assume that this nuclear family is going to be able to give people everything that they need, and they just can't. Like, it's just we need as many adults around kids who can hear them and see them um, as possible. And you were somebody who was willing to hear me and see me to listen to Garth Brooks. <laughs> um, and this weird little black girl who likes this country star. Um, and and really hear that and honor that in me and also not think we were weird or doing something bad because we were throwing horse poop at each other. Like you were just someone who delighted in who we were. And it's hard for parents to do that. You know, they got to do the rules and they got to help us survive and they got to do all of the things that just the basic things. And so I'm, as a parent now, I recognize how hard it is to just, delight in your kids sometimes as much as we want to, um, it's hard to do. And so when there are other people, other adults in your life who can just laugh at your shenanigans and not have to correct you necessarily or not have to, you know, give you a lesson in that, but just delight in it, it it's, it's a really freeing thing. And so I just am so grateful for the delight you took in me as a person. It meant so much. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It continues you know, to mean so much. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Don't put me out the pasture yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things that I remember, and I don't know if it was, it wasn't the first year, but um, which which you also honed into me on how important you, how special you were to me. Um, we had gone mm-hmm. down. We were making calls about Detroit summer. We had gone down to where I worked, and it was like at the end of it, you know, like everybody wanted to go in. Like I don't know what we were going to go get into. <laughs> I don't know what we were going to go get into, <laughs> but um, you know. Your mother, and cautiously had entrusted you into our hands. I mean, which mm-hmm. I mean, hats off to her. And um, we were down mm-hmm. there, and it was like, you know, hey, let's go get out. And I said, hey, I got this. And you said, being the adult in the room, you said, <laughs> and I was sixteen or seventeen. I need to check in with my mother. And everyone said, no, no, you know, she's gonna say no, you can't do it. And you said, yeah, but. I have to check in with your mother, with my mother, and of course you called mm-hmm. her. And she said no, you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it was okay. And you know, like you know, because I was ready to go all renegade, you know. But but the fact that that what you just said, how you could have the fun and do like this, but you still recognize, okay, I got to do this, and mm-hmm. I respected that. Because not only did you do that, because later on, your mother not only entrusted you, but she entrusted your, your younger sister and brother to yeah. those of us in Detroit Summer. And if we, there was that balance, you know, and if you yeah. hadn't stepped up and, and, like, and, and in that moment and recognized that fine line that you had to draw, you know, in fact, we even had your cousin. Okay, we had the whole family. You know, that's we right. Had the whole family. <laughs> wow. You know, and and I think that that came from that. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. My mom had a hard time trusting, and I, what I told her is, you can trust me. I I know that this is important, and I, you know, and so I had to be trustworthy in order for her to really let go. And so, um, you know that that's that's something that she instilled. And so I think, you know, again, I think one of the reasons why it was hard for her to let go is who are these adults, you know, and are they going to undermine what I've been trying to teach you? Um, And I was telling her, no, they're going to enhance what you've been trying to teach. As a matter of fact, what you tried to teach me is what led me to this, right? Is this like there's a way here that I can make a difference in the city and I want to. And this is the means by which I'm going to do it. And these adults are going to help me do it, not not get in your way of what you're trying to do. And so, yeah, it was important to me, in the, in, especially in the first couple of years, to, to be square with her so that she would allow me to be free, really. Um, so she knew she could trust me. And I also, I mean, it's not like you all were going renegade to do anything wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. So that you know that with that you all were trustworthy as well, and so it was just, and yeah, it all worked out. And my mom has my mom loves you all to death, and and what she says now is that you all helped her raise me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so important because you know we live in this society that focuses on you know the individual and individualism and nuclear mm-hmm. nuclear family, and I think. You know, it's so important 
that you pointed out that, you know, it's crucial for kids to be connected to something larger, like beyond their family and recognize, you know, that they're a part of this world and, you know, the importance of community and collaboration. And, you know, I totally wish that I could be a part of Detroit summer and, you know, unfortunately that didn't happen, but, you know, to, to hear, you know, what you're saying and how much that experiences, um, those experiences have really impacted you. So um, beautiful and your um, continual emphasis on community throughout, you know, your journey. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's not over. No, no, it's not. No, it's it, not. It's still going. So, Kizzy, you still mm-hmm. may have that chance. And <laughs> Huh. Because there are, there are actually boss kids who are in Detroit summer during the summer. This and it's so I mean, talk about full circle. It is it's just amazing oh, wow. to watch kids that I see during the school year want to continue to think about how they can stay connected during the summer with their friends and with other people in the city who want to make a difference and having them explore things with one another and explore the city with these, you know, young adults. And it's it's really funny, the, the just the intergenerational spirit of it. I think anyone who's part of an intergenerational community kind of has a sense of, of what it felt like to be in Detroit summer, you know, because there were like, I, so I was 16 and I think I was the youngest around 16, and then because I think that was the like the youngest you could be, and then maybe it was 14. Anyway, the um, then there were these college students in their 20s, which were you know they felt like very old and sophisticated to me, and then there was like Michelle's generation, and then there was like Grace's generation, and just you know and Mary Mary Brown in between there. Um, mm-hmm. who, you know, we got to shout out Miss Mary Brown. Um, I got to show mom. And, you know, just all of the people who were working together, and it just felt like a whole, it just, I don't know, I, I can't explain it, but it just, knowing that there were people who had your back, who were older than you, who were just like, no, I got you. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just, you know, my mom was a single mom, too. So it's just who doesn't, what single parent doesn't need a whole bunch of adults, like, just kind of standing behind her, holding her back, saying, like, we got you. We're not going to let your kids fall. You know, you when you're tired, we're going to pick her up and, you know, and her sister and her brother and her cousin, and we're going to go <laughs> garden and tire them out and then bring them home, and they'll have stories to tell, and they'll be tired at the end of the day. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. It really was. It really was. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that, that that part of those intergenerational dialogues, because mm-hmm. everyone had a chance to talk, and, you know, and I think of other people, you know, I mean, I am, I think that, first of all, thank you for the shout-out to my mom, because, you know, I think that was just, like, so cool to be able to yeah. have her come in and be a part of it. I have so many pictures of her being a part of it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking, at, and it's funny because you know, I was talking to um, with Adrian, and so we were, she was talking about her book, and someone was talking about finding a way to let 
their mom find herself and, and, and be activism. And mm-hmm. so I told, told them about how my mother came and got involved in Detroit Summer. And it was there that she said, you know, I'm not just Michelle's mom. I'm Mary, you know, and she got to be have that time of just being Mary and being a part of of all the the things that we did, and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, and we did a lot of crazy things. <laughs> I mean, we did, you know, I still recall, you know, uh, for people when we would go in Dorothy Garner's neighborhood with the bullhorn and that, and someone said said that they thought we were a bunch of crazy crossing guards out there <laughs> walking through the neighborhood protesting against, you know the drugs in the neighborhood and all these things that are doing it. When you came into Detroit summer, because I know that then you, um, did you, what did you see? Did you really think that, you know, here many moons later that there would be a part of it that would still be there? You know, we talked about respiriting, rebuilding, and what was the other one? Redefining. Redefining. Mm-hmm. Redefining. Did you, you know, how real were those words to you? And, you know, do you still see them in your life? They were very real to me, but in a very, I think, 16-year-old idealistic way that things are real, right? You know, like, of course we can re-spirit, of course we can redefine, of course we can rebuild. I'm painting this house. I'm rebuilding it right now. You, you know what I mean? And it's going to make all the difference in the world. Like, there was there was certainly that spirit. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, part of, you know, my youthfulness was a, was a great righteousness, which I kind of, you know, <laughs> am a little embarrassed about right now, but it, but that was there. So, yes, I did feel those words very deeply. But I, I don't think that I understood, no, I did not know they were going to be as long-lasting, that this was going to be uh, as far-reaching into my life as it has been. I did, I did not understand that then. I think I was just idealistic and 16 and thought I was going to have a really cool, fun summer um, where I could feel good about doing something I felt was important. Um, but in the midst of that, it also felt like I saw people like you and Shay and Grace and Jimmy whose life, whose life was dependent on doing stuff like that, and I didn't know that that was a thing. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know you could make a life being an activist. I didn't know that you could um, have a life that included these kinds of activities on a regular basis. And so, and I also didn't know what redefining meant, that that's, that's a constant thing for me, um, redefining. It's kind of, you know, it's, I remember Gray saying, and she says in, in the documentary about her that, you know, she used to think like, oh, I'll never change because if I change, I'm, you know, I'm betraying the revolution or whatever. And then you realize it, it's really important to change. And so I'm, learning how important it is to redefine things, that that's not, that that's okay. Um, respiriting is, has become a big word for me, too, when I think about, like, 
like you were saying, Kizzy, this idea of things being bigger than you, not only having like a community that's like bigger than your immediate family, but also having a purpose and a mission that's bigger than just your own upward mobility and your own personal success. But like how is how is your life contributing to the success of the collective, right? And and mm-hmm. and that that's a spiritual practice for me. Um, I remember saying to my mom, who was, you know, who's, you know, she's Christian um, Mm -hmm. in a way that I am not. And I would say to her, you know, I feel at Detroit Summer like you feel, I think, on Sundays at church. Like, this is church for me. Mm -hmm. And so it became a way for me to understand my spirituality, like participating in Detroit Summer, feeling connected to people, feeling connected to the land, um, and then was it redefining, respiriting, rebuilding? Yeah, I mean, it's what does it mean to rebuild? What does progress mean? I mean, I think the conversations around gentrification now, like even Detroit looks way different than it did in 1992 now. Mm-hmm. But is that the progress we were going for in 1992? Not all of it is. And so how do we think about rebuilding? How do we redefine what rebuilding means? Like it's all those words continue to resonate in my life, absolutely. But did I know that that was going to be true then? Not at all. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. And along those lines, you know, how has your relationship with Detroit evolved over time, you know, since your experiences with Detroit Summer? Mm. Such a great question. Um, It's so funny because my daughter's 13 and she's like totally 13 right now. And so (laughs) I'll say to her about Detroit and so while her eyes are like, I know your beloved Detroit. Um, Um, it is so, so I think pre-16, Detroit was my home because it's where I lived, right? It was my home. Now it is my home because I've poured so much into this place and I've learned how significant this city is to the country as a whole. Um, it's, I think it's contributions to, to who we are as a nation both the good and bad of that is is really interesting. Like, so one of the units that the kids are working on at the school in third through fifth grade is industrialization, right? And so, um, but they also are doing a unit later on about the way humans interact with the environment. And so I was suggesting to the teachers to think about, like, to focus on cars. Like, on one level, the contribution that Detroit made to, like, the car, the auto industry and how that impacted the world and the war effort and all of that is tremendous and amazing. But then what did that do to our interactions with the environment? Like, is, like should we be like, rah, rah, Motown, the, you know, the Motor City? Like, on one level, sure, but, like, what, is that, what did that do? And so what are the consequences mm-hmm. of our actions long term, and did we think about that? And so it, it's... I just think it's such a great city to explore what is wonderful about our country and what is complicated and complex about our country and about our world and where we need to go. And I didn't – that was lost on me until I heard Jimmy talk about being an auto worker. And it's – 
unless you're exposed to people who can put things in a, like a long-term historical context, I think it's really hard to just not just go about your life and just be doing stuff <laughs> unconsciously and thoughtlessly instead of examining, oh, this seems like a good idea right now, but how's this going to affect like 10 years from now? And you might not even be able to predict it, but it's at least worth thinking about it. And that's what I think um, – I do when I when I look at Detroit. Like I just I think there's so much that's wonderful about it and so much that's complex about it and I feel very much wrapped up in its complexity. And that that's what I love about it. That's why it feels like home. You know, it's interesting because um, when you talk about that uh a while back, last year I met a woman in Atlanta um who was working on her PhD from Antioch, and mm. it's been a while, you know, it's been a while, and, you know, Antioch had, um, I guess at one point in time, shut down as, as a college, and then it came back, and now it's online. And she was talking about way back in the day, she said, and one of the things she liked about it was, like, the students had an opportunity to go to other cities and see things. So she was talking about an experience that they had had, her group, and they had come to Detroit, and much of what you had said, you just said about, you know, hearing people talk about it from there and how it impacted her. And I said, wait a minute, when was that? And she said, oh, it was probably somewhere in the 90s or something. I said, I think you came and did Detroit <laughs> because we had, you know, because and to have that impact, like she couldn't put her finger on it, but she remembered coming, and she said, we didn't stay long. She said, I think maybe a couple weeks, mm. and we worked, and she was talking about all these things she did. And I'm going to, but still, like you said, here, now that she had gone through many phases of her life and traveled around and had settled down and was ended up going back to Antioch online to get her Ph.D., part of what she was thinking about, were things that she had learned from Detroit summer. And um, well, we, t we talked about one, I remember one year that what we talked about was planting the seeds of a new economy. And here is a seed that was planted, and she also does like holistic, um, she calls it holistic alchemy, in another state, mm -hmm. but it came from her way of thinking that had been in touched in a way, by what we were doing here. Yeah, and every now and then I'll, I'll have something and I'll talk to somebody and it comes up and I go like, wow. Mm. Little did we know. Yes, little did we know. Mm -hmm. The impact. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take our first break here and then we're going to go into teaching. <laughs> so we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. 
And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Julia Putnam and Kizzy Joseph. Um, you know, when we left, we were talking about seeds of a new economy, and, you know, and we talked about how we, we planted all these seeds and these ideals in people's minds. I remember when you went off to school and you were at um, Michigan State, in fact, I remember mm-hmm. coming up and seeing it, and I'm thinking, like, did you just have a, was it like one plate and one set of, I remember that we had to pass around how we ate, you know, how, how we oh. ate that one time when I came up to visit, you know, and, and that, and, but it was oh, fun. funny, I, mean, I don't remember that. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if you just had two, because um, Becca was your, was Becca was your roommate, right? Uh-huh, yes. Okay, because it was like, I don't know if only one of us could eat at the same at time or only two of us, but anyhow, it was just like you guys were living your, your best college life, you know, and having a, good, having a good time. But, you know, what was funny was like you, you continued to be involved. When did you decide that maybe you might want it to be going to teaching? Um. You know, it's so funny because when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer. And whenever I would tell people that, they'd say, oh, well, you know, you should go into teaching. And I was like, see, that's, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> um, it was always really irritating to me. Um, but then it was, it was around, I think I was around 19 or something, when I realized that I was recruiting for Detroit Summer, and I was also coordinating, and so I was, like, working with the younger people who were doing the projects and, you know, making sure everybody was getting where they needed to go. And I loved the conversations that they would have. Like, I loved being privy to them. I loved what they would talk about. I loved that they were thinking about their identity. And, you know, it just just tickled me to remember my own upbringing, my own interactions with Detroit Summer, and then to hear younger teenagers, you know, talking the way they did. And I love literature. And I thought that marrying those two things, would being a teacher would be the best way to marry those two things, that I would be able to get to talk to teenagers and I get to talk to them about their lives and I get to talk to them about literature. And so that's what made me think about teaching. Wow. Uh, that's something. Yeah. How, you know, you did. I remember you came back. You were, you you did. You did a lot of work in the office as far as putting together. But you still had time to like sort of get out there sometime and do it. You went to Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Um, then you went you went to Italy. Um, you got you came back. I remember you were teaching at University Prep, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I was reading an article where you went back and you said, you know, Grace, eh, this is not quite was it. What were you looking for? in teaching that you weren't seeing and what ended up being your life's work, particularly back then in those days of university prep? Yeah. Um, I was seeing the job of a teacher being really isolated, um, not isolated, it was diminished. So I remember... There was one student, Joseph, actually, who hated to read, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated, probably hated to read as much as I love to read. And it was such a fight to get him to read, and it was part of my job was to teach him to read well. Um, and he was just so resistant. 
But I remember in, he was doing a project and he wanted a gecko. And he was going to convince his mother to let him get a gecko for a pet. And so he would bring books about geckos and he would read about gecko environments and he would read about, like, all the things that would convince his mother that, like, he really would be able to take care of a gecko and would know all about them. And it was the only time I saw him read and I thought, you know, maybe some people just don't get pleasure out of reading fiction. Like, that's just not their jam. But they'll read Mm -hmm. nonfiction for a purpose. Right? And so is my job to really make Joseph read fiction? Like maybe Shakespeare's is not going to be something he's going to be into ever. And I thought like, and maybe that's okay. But it was my job to not be okay with that. And I started to question like what is the purpose of a teacher and what makes our lives important and what makes them worth like worthwhile and I thought could somebody like go through the like for me not reading literature not reading Toni Morrison not reading Shakespeare would be like it would diminish my quality of life but maybe that's not true for everybody maybe that's just a me thing right and is it Reading literature that makes somebody's life meaningful, I'm not sure. And is being a teacher forcing somebody to do something they can't not stand something I want to do as a teacher? And I felt more like a cop than I felt like a like yeah. a guide. And I went into it, like, as a guide. You know, like, in Detroit, some of you all weren't like, you have to know these things. You have to, you know what I mean? It was just very mm-hmm. much like, hey, this is my jam. I'm into it. You want to know more about it? And I'd be like, yeah. And then it was okay. It was not forced up. And so then it just made me think, well, what's the purpose of school? And so I was asking all these questions that, like, no administrator wanted to hear. Like, it was never, like, a philosophical discussion at staff meetings. It was just kind of like, do this, do that, do this. Um, And it wasn't a relationship I wanted to have with kids. And so that's when I went to Grace. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that this is what I was into. And she said, you're not, that's, that's not you, that's the system. You should talk to other teachers who are feeling the same way. And that's when I joined a group of teachers who were having these philosophical discussions about the purpose of education, you know, the relationship between teachers and students and what that, like, who's the teacher, who's the student, when should which be which, all of that. Um, and that led us to saying, like, we should actually kind of try to design a school based on these values that we say are important to us as educators. And I would say Grace was very resistant to it because she was like, you know, you're going to start a school and you're going to get bogged down in all the administrative things that you are frustrated by with your administrators. Like, don't do that. You can't do it within the system of school. But I thought if we're going to redefine, right, here's back to redefining, if we're going to redefine the purpose of education, if we're going to really think about that, then we need institutions that are trying out these ideas to see if school as an institution can be different. And so that kind of led to the, to the James and Grace Lee Bog School. And when we asked Grace's blessing to name the school after her, we were going to name it the Grace Lee Boggs School, and she said, I want you to add Jimmy's name. That was one. Mm-hmm. And two, mm-hmm. um, she said that we would have to think beyond what we even believed was possible. 
because we've all been indoctrinated as to what school is and we've all been successful in that, you know, that way of being. And when things get hard, we'll default to that way of being. And the only way to resist that is to think beyond what you even think is possible. And that's what we try to do when we get in a jam, when we feel like we're just defaulting to the easy school thing. Um, And there are certainly those administrative things that we get caught up in um, that we don't like. But I also think that we have done a good job of making school not just be about adults policing children. Um, and we have made school be about figuring out what your unique contribution to the world is and that we all have a responsibility to find that contribution and to make that contribution and that school is not just about, you know, getting good grades to get a good job just for yourself. It's what's your, what's your collective contribution? What's your contribution to the collective? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about, you know, the values of the James and Grace Lee Boggs School and how that is reflected, you know, within the community, the curriculum. Um, yeah, just curious. Yeah, um, I, I'd say, Kizzy, that's always evolving. Um, but the mission is to nurture creative, critical thinkers who contribute to the well-being of their communities. And pretty much most of the kids, especially the older ones, can tell you that mission um, because we're really clear with the kids that you, it's, you know, it's okay to be creative. As a matter of fact, we need people who are creative because we need to create new things um, different than what we have. We need people who think critically because we have to examine what we've been doing to decide what needs to go forward with us and what needs to be kept back. Um, And we need to be critical about what we're being told because it's not always the truth. But then we also say, you know, there are plenty, plenty of creative critical thinkers who are crooks and so it's really important to also know that you have to contribute to the well-being of your communities. And that's plural because, you know, your classroom's a community, your school's a community, your neighborhood, your city, your, you know, we all exist in different communities, and we need to contribute to the well-being of them. Um, so, so that mission very much is, is something we hold dear and we communicate. And... Um, we value empathy and um, they're actually habits of mind, heart, and hands. We tell the kids you don't just learn with your mind, you learn with your heart, you learn with your hands by doing things, by the way we feel about things. Um, And there are these habits that we have to practice just to be like good humans in the world. How can we be more human human beings, as Jimmy and Grace would ask often. Um, So empathy and inclusion and collaboration, self-determination, courage, those are all things that we talk about. And so the kids will use those words because we talk about how we practice them in class. Um, We had one family, I was just telling my husband this early, we had one family move to Colorado in May, um, and the mom wrote us because there's like an amusement park that had been closed down that the kids had been really looking forward to going to when they moved. You know, that was kind of the, you know, we're going to move or we're going to go to this amusement park. But it was closed due to COVID. And the older kid who was a second grader 
was teach, was playing with his younger brother and sister, and they were playing governor. And so they would make calls to the governor, and they would write letters to the governor about, like, opening this park and how ways to make it safe. And she was just like, I was telling my school-age friends here, like, she was telling her school, her friends who had similar kids to her kids' ages, and they were like, yeah, no, our kids would never come up with that game. And she was like, I'm pretty sure it's because my kid went to the box school, that, like, the game that they played was how do you, how do you, you know, lobby the governor to, like, do something that you think is important in your community, and she was just thanking us for, for that. So, you know, we think about ways to embed this in the, in the curriculum, um, but it certainly is just a part of the culture. And we have a place-based model of learning. So the idea is that you're learning the state content standards through the ways in which we engage with the places around us. Um, so that's pretty much how we try to meet this ideal of being creative, critical thinkers who contribute to the well-being of our communities. Mm. That's lovely. <laughs> you know, during that period of time, I can recall going, being in D.C., and I want to say it was with, it was in a meeting of people who were from the community, and I want to say that we were talking with Arnie Duncan, and, you know, and people were talking about, you know, like, well, what you're talking about, schools, aren't helping, you know, we're talking about community and we're starting to do it. And he was talking about, you know, um, charter schools. And then we said, well, you know, you have to do sometimes there's more than just charter schools, uh, the reforms that he was talking about for charter schools and then how to to judge teachers on how, how well the students are doing on standardized tests. And we were saying, like, no, I mean, there's another part that um, – that has to happen. It's more than just tests about being part of the community, understanding it. And he was like, well, there's nobody doing that. And I can recall saying, well, you know, uh, have you ever been to Detroit? You know, have you ever talked to, and it was at the time when you were, you guys were like, we were having these conversations about a different type of education. How has, and I know that we've gone backwards, but have you found that there's more people who, um, you know, outside of the big education bubble, you know, are there more people who are looking at and talking about and connecting in other cities like we have found, like we know that Detroit Summer has been copied in various forms, different ways for different mm-hmm. uh, communities, mm-hmm. but has what you're talking about with the box school is there a cadre of educators who feel this way, who are looking at at other ways, and, you know, particularly the place base because our cities are changing so? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes, um, so we even belong to a network of um, other educators that, um, that – there's a program outside of Eastern directed by an Eastern, Eastern Michigan professor, um, Ethan Lowenstein, who was part of the early philosophical discussions, right, about, like, what school should be. And Ethan directs the Southeastern Michigan Stewardship Coalition, and that's a network of schools that um, – or educators who are working on place-based education. As I know of it, the, uh, the box was the only school in Michigan that is – specifically and solely about place-based education, even though the Marygrove 
school, the school in Marigold that just opened the high school is also talking about place-based learning. Uh, Detroit Waldorf is a private school that just started talking about place-based learning and using that language um, after us. And then there are other educators all across Michigan who are doing place-based practices. And there's even a organization called the North Dakota Study Group, which is a group of uh, progressive educators who meet yearly to talk about just progressive education, not necessarily just place-based education, but how do we think about education beyond this, this standardized testing and how do we think about success beyond that. So there are educators who are thinking about this and people um, and organizations who are trying to change the conversation around education, but I think it's, it is far too few. Um, and I think the, the conversation about standardization is still winning um, in a way that is disturbing for me. Like even right now during COVID, um, you know, the current administration um, has said that they are not going to um, entertain waiving the state standardized test for the year, even though education looks so interesting and different and weird and it's, it's different for people depending on your class, depending on your technology access. So to say that we're going to be able to judge whether a school is doing well based on the standardized test is ridiculous. To say that we should um, measure teacher success by how kids are doing on the standardized test is ridiculous. Like, I don't know why we aren't having a conversation of judging teacher success on how emotionally well their kids are at the end of this year. Do you know what I mean? Like, how, you know, mm -hmm. how engaged are kids still in learning at the end of this year? Like, I feel like our kids just wanting to show up and talk to each other and talk to the teacher is a measure of success at this particular time. Um, but that's not the conversation we're having. The conversation we're having is like, you know, we still got to take that M step. <laughs> that's just, uh -huh, it's uh -huh. just so ridiculous to me. So it's, it's, we still got a long way to go, um, but there are people who are thinking about this. I, it, we're, not, we're not alone and by ourselves, which is very good because that would feel really lonely. Can you talk briefly about that amazing, what do you call it, documentary, I would say, that the students were involved in talking about, you know, the incinerator and, you know, how that fit in, how did that come about, and how does that fit in with overall, I mean, because really the incinerator and its impact on Detroit is, if you want to talk about something that's place-based, you know, there you go. That is very true. So this is this actually starts with a funny story, and I'll, I'll be really brief. But a second grade teacher or first grade teacher overheard her kids having a conversation, and she didn't really know what they were talking about at first because the conversation was, we're going to, like, put on our ninja costumes and maybe, like, we'll all be in costumes and we'll go at the end of the day and we'll just, like, get sledgehammers and we'll knock down the incinerator. So they were, like, plotting to, like, go into the <laughs> costumes because there was mm -hmm. one kid whose parents were really active in, 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 in the anti-incinerator um, thing. So she 
talk to the next year's teacher because it's during the summer, look close to the summer, about how they could learn about the incinerator and what happens to garbage. And so they did this whole thing on like, well, okay, so if the incinerator, incinerator is not going to be there and it's unhealthy, then what should we do with our garbage? So they had this whole thing about trash and what we could do with it and the different like options and why the incinerator might not be a good idea. And then they did this uh, movie called Trash Life, which is mm-hmm. hilarious. Um, and mm-hmm. you can see it on our website, blogschool.org. Um, mm-hmm. And not too long after Trash Life, Life came out, maybe six months later or something, the incinerator movement, the movement to close down the incinerator actually went through. And you can't tell a second grader at the blog school that it wasn't like Trash Life didn't have some part of that, you know, their advocacy for that. So, like, they very much believe that you learn what you need to learn and you make your case and, like, things happen. And that's what we need. We need young people to understand that their knowledge and their active activism is what changes things. It's so it's so funny, but it's also you also can see how much they learned in order to do the movie. You know, like the knowledge that it took for them to you know uh, simulate what happens uh, to trash. It like it follows the life of a styrofoam cup. <laughs> they're like they're like mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. What would have happened if it got recycled? What would happen if it got thrown away? Like it's just so amazing to watch kids learn and then what they do with that learning. And I just want to say before we end, it's important to know, Michelle. I think you'll love this, especially is that we were in one building for seven years, and mm-hmm. just recently we were able to buy a building that is three blocks away from Jimmy and Grace's home that they lived in for 50 years. We can practically see the house from our front door. And it just, things like that have happened with the Bronx School since the beginning of just this wonderful kismet um, and connection. And, you know, I I would say that it's Jimmy and Grace have got our backs, but um, Mm -hmm. it's been wonderful to watch the evolution. Wow, definitely full circle. What were some of your lessons or, you know, rather insights, um, if you want to view it as that, from the visioning of the Bog School to now as a experienced, you know, principal, administrator, educator? What were were some of the lessons um, throughout (laughs) that journey oh my goodness but (laughs) the the three co-founders we always joke about the book you know write that down for the book Um, because there's just there's so many lessons to say but one I would say is um, the, the founders of the school are three women I would never have done this by myself um, I never would have wanted to, and I never would have, and I never would have been able to pull it off. Um, and I think the leadership of women is a really important lesson. Um, I think that we're all very different kinds of people. We're different personalities. We're three di- but it's the clashes and the contradictions um, and the conflicts that come from our differences that actually make the school better and stronger. And so I think that that's mm-hmm. an important lesson is that um, conflict is important and it's really scary and it's horrible and nobody likes it, but it is really important to growth. And we also are one of the – 
think it's like maybe five or six schools now in Michigan who have um, a charter schools who have a union. And um, I think that a lot of charter schools are afraid of that, and it certainly has not been, that has not been friction-free. Um, it has been really difficult and hard at times, but again, I think teacher voice um, and the conflict that comes from trying to think about what's best for the school and what's best for individual people um, and the, the health and, and working conditions of, of individual people is an important conflict to have that makes things better. Um, so I would say, yeah, well, conflict is really, really, really important to growth um, and knowing how to manage it is important. I think um, it's important to constantly have philosophical conversations about what you're doing. Um, we have a very clear and core ideology that we follow so that when we get into hard times, we can look back to it. And we also tell ourselves that, you know, there's going to be a day when we as the founders retire and for the Bog School to stay the Bog School in the spirit that we intended, that core ideology needs to not change even if the people um, who are running the school change. And so I think that that's an important lesson um, that we've learned and, and hopefully that will play out. Um, the way we intended to. Um, no one knows what teachers do. And mm. I told somebody that, and it was actually Sally, uh, Michelle, that I was saying mm -hmm. that to. And she, said, and she said, well, no one wants to know what teachers do. <laughs> you know, like people want teachers and kids to go in a room over there and leave them alone and be out of the way. And... Mm. Um, and I think that there's some truth to that. But if people did understand what teachers do, they'd understand it's a really, really complicated job. Like helping kids think and learn and be wrong and learn from being wrong instead of being ashamed about being wrong, um, helping kids manage how to be in conflict, helping kids manage how to um, be in community, to speak up, to uh, conjecture, to think critically, to question, all of that, those are all really, really complicated tasks. Um, and to watch teachers think and plan and execute that is one of, it's just one of the most fun things in the world. Like my favorite thing is to just sit in on a class and watch because magic is happening. And I don't think people understand that about teaching as a profession, and I don't think that they take teachers, and I don't think that they take young people seriously enough. And I think that we'd be having different conversations in our country about our priorities if we did. So that, that's also one lesson. that I didn't anticipate that going into it, um, but I think it's just – it's so fascinating. It's just, it's a, schools are fascinating places, um, and it, both in the ways that they can be super unhealthy and in the ways that they can be super healthy and productive, and we aren't having enough conversations about that, in my judgment. So what did Grace say? Well, let's take a break, and then I want to talk about what Grace said and then the whole process, okay? So we'll be right back.
Reflections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown talking. Chrissy and I are talking with Julia Putnam. Julia, okay, was it in the movie about Grace where I remember seeing you going around and you're peeking in buildings and looking at, uh, you know, at sites for the school? Was that in Grace's movie, the movie about Grace's life? It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you know when you found the right space and what did Grace have to say when all of this came through and, and you opened the doors? So first of all, I, I, I um, mentioned my co-founders, but I didn't say by name, and I should. They always, always need and deserve uh, a shout-out, and that is Amanda Rossman um, and Marisol Teachworth. And they're mm-hmm. um, the other two co-founders. And Amanda was the one who was in charge of finding our building. And it was we were very cocky when we started off, thinking that was going to be <laughs> the easiest part because of all of the empty buildings in Detroit. And then we learned a lot about school code and we learned a lot about building code and we learned, and it turned out to be the hardest part. And so it was to the point where we actually thought we would have to delay opening for a year because we couldn't find a space to be in. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Amanda just happened upon this person and she spent like a whirlwind week of like not sleeping to like seal the lease and get us into the building. Um, And then we had seven weeks to get it renovated. And so once that happened and we were actually able to open the door on the very first day with the um, fire inspector saying, like, minutes before the day was supposed to start that we could officially open the doors, um, it was very suspenseful. Um, So we got in the building, and that first week, I think, um, that Friday was Boggs Day, and so we have a Boggs Day every year now. Um, and Grace was still alive then, and she came um, to speak to the kids. And so it, we've got great footage of that really wonderful moment because it was the only time Grace was actually ever able to visit the building. And so she held up pictures of herself as a little kid um, mm-hmm. and said, you know, I be your age, and, you know, um, one day you'll be my age. It was really beautiful. And we sang songs together, and it was lovely. And I think she really enjoyed that day. And after that, there was a group who went to visit her house. Um, And those kids still talk about that day. And just, you know, they say that we don't remember specifics. We just remember being in a room that just felt like it had a lot of wisdom in it. Um, And when I left that day after the kids coming to her house, they were all um, piling into the bus, and she had me lean down, and she said, Julia, this might be the most important thing we've ever done. (laughs) Mm. And I had... 
I have different feelings about that now than I did then. Then Grace was, I was mad because Grace spent a lot of time talking about how we should not open the school. Um, (laughs) And critiquing the decision. And so then I kind of rolled my eyes like, okay, Grace, it's the best thing we ever did, whatever. Um, But now looking back on that moment, I am so, 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 like I get – chills because I'm so glad that she owns that moment. And I'm so glad that she was able to feel the energy I think she felt in that room of like, oh, yes, this, the kids who are excited to be here, to learn, mm-hmm. to talk to each other. Yeah, I see what you were talking about now. And and that is what I take away from that moment now. Um so I'm 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 really glad that she was able to meet some of the kids and feel their energy because I think the older Grace got, the more enamored she got with young people. I mean, she always was really respectful of young people, and I think it's one of the reasons why Detroit Summer was so successful was the just the respect that you all had for young people. But then for them to be in her house that age asking her the questions that they asked her. And it's funny because I prepped the kids. I was like, don't go in there with no dummy questions. Like, Grace is, she likes the people who are thoughtful and ask good questions. Like, she's not going to be happy if we go in there wasting her time. So the kids were like, okay, we got this. Like, you know, like, as a philosopher, like, they, you know, they were just like, you know, really, they took it very seriously as they take learning at the box school. I mean, it really is a building full of nerds in the best way. And I, I say that with the, the most complimentary, in the most complimentary way. Um, because they see themselves very clearly as the descendants of Jimmy and Grace and how they took the world seriously and they took community seriously and, and they took young people seriously. And so Grace calling young people solutionaries, the kids own that. They own it. And that is, I think, maybe it's, I, I recognize in the way I think Grace did that this school and these kids are a part of her legacy. Um, and and that, that's just, I can't think of a greater honor. Now, when you, got, when you chose that building, because, you know, after you had, like, the opening, and I was talking to people, some people from the east side, and they said, Wait, that that was the Sophie Wright building, you know. Did you mm-hmm. know? And, mm-hmm. and they talked about programs that they had gone to as kids, being East Siders. Did you know yes. that history? We knew. We didn't know the history when we when we first found the building and leased it. But in preparing it to be a school, we learned about it. So actually, state representative of Michigan, Stephanie Chang was our intern at the time, and she did research on the building. So we found out about Sophie Wright. We found out that it was the first free kindergarten in Detroit and that it had been a rec center. There's even a rumor that Joe Lewis used to practice in that building. Um, We know that uh, Gervin is his last name. Iceman was his nickname, but he was a – basketball player, I think a piston, and he used to uh, play there on the playground with his friends growing up on the east side. So it's, it's got such great history, and we found ourselves just 
seeing ourselves as a continuation in the community, as a, a positive um, presence there. And the neighbors could not have been more wonderful. And we did like an oral history project in the first couple of years where people would come in and talk to the kids about what the building was before it was a school to help the kids see that like everything's a textbook. This building that we're in, the people who used to use this building are people that we learned from. Um, and so when we left of it, we, they, the owners wouldn't sell it to us, and so we had to find a place that could fit this growing school, right? And so now that we're in the new building, it's on Gothi Street, and another place-based lesson right there, right, is mm-hmm. I heard somebody call it Goth, and I was like, oh, am I pronouncing the street name wrong? So I put out on Facebook, like, hey, owners, <laughs> like, insiders, but, you know, like, how do you pronounce this street name? And there were, like, 150 comments of people just talking about, this is what we call it, this is why, you know, like, oh, but it used to be Goethe, if, you know, if you're pronouncing it the German way, but that's not how Eastsiders, you know, pronounce it. And so, like, all this conversation about uh, colonization and history and the German history in Detroit and mm-hmm. whether or not you honor how neighbors say it, how, like, the people who live there say it, or you do it the quote-unquote right way or the original way or, you know, it just brings up all this conversation. So even having conversations with kids about, like, why is this street named this street? Who is it? Who's Joe Campo? Who is Cass? Who is, you know, like, who is Gothi? or Guta, mm-hmm. and, like, who, you know, why do, it's like, all of these things are, like, things that you learn about when you start to talk about place, right? But it opens up all of these other different themes that are really rich. So you don't have to have, like, a history textbook. You could talk about the history of the street name and be doing lots of really great historical research with kids and and learning about how to be a historian with kids. And so it's, what we've learned about place-based education is you don't have to go far and you don't have to buy textbooks from Houghton Mifflin for kids to, like, learn very deeply um, and very richly. You know, I remember when you put that out there because in our early years we had lived on Benito between Charlevoix and we called it Sophie. And, you know, and it was like, and I was, when I sat, in fact, I was sitting here talking to Ojeda and she was like, you remember that? I said, yeah, I remember I, I, I stayed, we lived there till you know, most of my early, early life. And I said, and I remember mm-hmm. my mother drilling in my head, if you get lost, you live on Benito between Charleroi and Gothi. And so, when said, so I immediately said, we called it Gothi, but I also knew that there was a mm-hmm. history of migration. Like there were mm-hmm. some Italian people who were there. There were some like I said, German people, and how many of those people went from the east side, they, you know, they got into the east side, then when blacks started to move on the east side, because I remember my parents showing us that at one point in time, black people could not buy a house on our street. But then how many Mm. of them, you can meet people now who live in St. Clair Shores, and they went further east, who come from that migration. And like you said, you don't need a textbook to learn that. You know, you, you, you can have these conversations and, and with people who are from the community and through the magic of social media put it out there and then get all these stories. Right, right. 
Uh, shifting the conversation into, you know, the time that we're in right now, the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, how has that affected, you know, you and your family, but also the Bog school community? Mm. Um, luckily, my family and I are okay. We're healthy. Um my husband's retired, and I'm able to work from home. Um, my kids do not love virtual learning. Um, <laughs> um, they are social people, and so I think it, it, it's been hard in that way. Um, but And the Bog School decided to go virtual, um, I think in um, May. And so it's been tough. But what we have done is really, really do our best to try to honor the fact that school is at home, um, in people's homes, and that that has a different effect for different people. And so we started off, we always start the first six weeks of school with community building, routine practicing, um, you know, hopes and dreams that turn into classroom agreements, like what's your hope and dream for this year as a student? How do we help each other achieve those hopes and dreams? What agreements do we have to make to make sure everyone gets what they need, right? And this year started off similarly, but it was also the teachers doing a Hopes and Dreams conference with every single one of their families, which was just, how you doing? <laughs> like not, you know, here's what to expect from the curriculum this year, you know, here, you know, here's the assessment for your kid, but just like how your home and how school affecting your home and how will your home affect school, like just what's going on, you know? Um, and... It's just set the tone, I think, this year in a much different way of teachers saying, like, oh, I I get what is going on with my students and their families, with families feeling like, okay, the teachers see us um, and have some context for, like, how we're showing up this year. Um, And we all feel like we care about each other, which which is the whole point. And so I feel like, Academically, things are going more slowly than they typically go, but community-wise, we're right on track where we usually are, and that feels good. And and families have said to us, like, we just are so appreciative of um, you all just making sure we're okay. We still are feeding families. you know, once a week there's, like, food distribution, and so we still get to see some people in person in their mask, and that's really wonderful. Um, some of the parents are self-organizing, doing, like, meetups with their kids, like in, like in parks, so that the kids can, like, run around with their mask on and see one another in person, um, so to kind of try to maintain that connection. So it's just, it's really about how we how we show up for one another as best we can. And even doing that, it's still really, really, really hard for families. This is not anybody's preferred way um, of going about anything. But we also have had a few deaths 
but not as many as I think that some um, districts have had. Um, we, ju- we just lost one of our mm-hmm. former after-school teachers, um, not due to COVID, just a, tra- tra- a tragic car accident. And what I realize is um, we have done a good job over the past seven years that we've been open at caring for one another so that when tragic things happen, we know how to care for each other. So it was instantly like our mental health counselor was like, Mr. Gabe had a lovely smile. Let's all take selfies of ourselves smiling. And it will be like hashtag smile for Mr. Gabe, you know. And then we found that he did a TED Talk as a teenager about smiling, which was really great. So we showed the kids that, and, you know, we're doing the selfies about smiling. But then also we usually celebrate um, Dia de los Muertos, um, or the Day of the Dead, and we honor those who we have lost, which also has given us practice in honoring the people that we miss um, and are sad about missing. And so we're passing out a friend of materials to make an a friend of this Thursday, and kids can make it about Mr. Gabe or they can make it about somebody else in their family. We often get pets. You know, they've uh, kids have made a friend of for Jimmy and Grace. And it's just it's beautiful. I, so I, I just think we've had a lot of practice in, in caring for one another, and, and, and this year it's, it's showing. Now, in the midst of all of this, you're moving. I mean, you moved. I mean, you know, you had to, to make this decision. You, you found a space. You've, this is your forever home, and you're moving. Yes. How has that been? I mean, did you go like, 2020, give me a break, Anna. You know, I don't know anyone who's not saying 2020, give me a break. So (laughs) I don't feel unique in that, but, yes, we all feel that way for sure, especially, um, again, Amanda, who's our facilities person, um, and Madi, who actually helped coordinate the move, like I'm the person who's like talking to kids and talking to families and talking to teachers. They're doing all of that kind of like the grunt work of like making sure that we have movers, making sure that like the, you know, one thing gets to the other. And we're actually currently, the three of us are often in the building to coordinate the just getting the um, building set up and renovated and painted and all of that stuff. So it's actually kind of lovely to see it come together, and it's lovely to be thinking about getting this space together and beautiful for the kids to come to it. One thing that's sad is our eighth graders, especially my daughter, this is her last year at the bog school with her mama, um, and I'm missing it. Like, you know, like on one level I'm not because she's like right upstairs, but on another level just running into her in the hallway and the eighth graders mm-hmm. getting to appreciate this new building, you know, after being cramped in this like old, very small building for so many mm-hmm. years and being troopers about that. I, you know, there's more, there's, there's definitely loss and mourning that we're all feeling. But, and it was very hard this summer to move and to coordinate figuring out how to do this online and, to, you know, to get the teachers feeling ready for the school year and confident and prepared. It was, this summer was very, very, very challenging and very difficult. But now that we're kind of settled in, it feels more like we're in a groove and in a routine and it's okay. But it was it was very, very hard. And it's it's going to remain hard because 
you know, we know we're probably going to be virtual until Christmas, but what happens after that, especially with our governor's powers being stripped away by the Supreme Court, um, and she was the one kind of guiding how we were going to be safe. And now that it's kind of, I don't know, do what y'all want. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to to decide, to know how to decide what's safe, what makes sense, and to be clear with families and teachers about that and students about that in a timely manner. You know, like so many people are like, well, what are you going to do about this? And it's just like, I don't know. And we've, we're very good at ambiguity at the box school, but it, is, it doesn't make it easy or fun. Mm-hmm. Is there a history behind this new space? Um, it was once, the, well, it was built in 1963, and, there's this, and it was the Alexander Graham Bell School originally. Um, there's a great marble statue in the hallway that is impossible to move that we do not know the origin of yet. So we're, <laughs> intrigued, we're intrigued by the mystery of this beautiful marble statue. Um, and then it had been a high school for uh, credit recovery before we bought it, and they needed a, a space on a bus line so that their students could get to it more easily. And so we're still learning some of the history. We don't have it all yet. I feel like Right now, what's historically significant to us is uh, being on Gothi right near Field Street, um, mm-hmm. near Jimmy and Grace. That's what, that see, that's what feels very historical for us right now. I was just wondering, what are some changes um, you would like to see in education post-COVID, you know, even if it's like, you know, decades later? <sighs> An emphasis on wellness. Um, I would love to see universal health care so that that is not one of the things that our families have to worry about. Um, I would love to see... Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by this kind of virtual setting. It's making me think about, like, what are the things that need to happen in person and what are the things that can happen online? Is that something that is always going to be an option to us? Or once we go back in person post-COVID, we're just going to go back to all in person? Like, that, that, that's interesting to me uh, to think about. I don't know what I want to see change, but I'm curious about how that might change and how we might make decisions about what was good about this that we would keep and what was horrible about it that we never want to have to do again. Um, I think student voice has always been important to us at the Bach School, but even more so now it's important to get student feedback because we're not going to get the buy-in from kids that we need and want if we don't talk to them about it. And so how do we enhance student leadership, not just at the Bronx School, but in schools all over. Um, I, I just think that we don't ask kids enough what's working for them and what isn't. Um, so it, it'd be interesting. I'd, I'd like to see that happen more often. Like we had a, a debate about cameras on or off when kids are on Zoom, and we made a decision that we should leave it up to kids. But a lot of families then expressed a concern that 
you know, my kid came back to school to feel connected, and they don't feel connected when they're just looking at, like, a black box with a name in it. And so maybe we should consider making that a requirement. And so we had a town hall meeting about it, which it was a lot like an intergenerational dialogue, um, Michelle, even though I facilitated it. But the kids' voices were, like, very prominent in that they were just like, look, just stop trying to make this Zoom thing a thing. They're like, this is not community. That's not how we're trying to, like, get our connection. There are other ways to do it, although they hadn't considered why it would make adults so sad that they didn't that they weren't showing up um, with their faces on camera and they also hadn't considered how hard it is for teachers to understand what they are getting and not getting if the teachers can't see their faces and if there's zoom silence so it's really important to have all of the voices in the room at the same time hearing from one another as opposed to just the adults making the decision based on what we think is best for kids, right? And so the follow-up to that was that the student, the classroom ambassadors who were on that call are going back to their classes and saying, here are the salient points that came out of the town hall that we should all think about, and maybe we make new agreements about how we use cameras, or maybe we don't. Like, you know, it's it's really so if there are changes that are made or they come up with some agreements like, well, maybe here are the times when we should have our cameras on and it should be required, Mm -hmm. and here are times in which we should have the choice to decide. It's all because kids listen to adults and listen to one another and listen to themselves and made a decision. It's not this top-down, just do what we know what's best for you. And I think that I would like to see that happen more often in schools. Mm. Including well, our I school. Think, I mean, I'm glad we did that, but I, I, I think there are ways that we can do it even more. You mentioned wellness. Um, that was your first answer. And I think, you know, that's crucially important, you know, in this time. And I'm very curious as to, you know, the aftermath of this pandemic, you know, what will mental health look like? you know, among Mm. our kids, especially kids of color, you know, the black Mm -hmm. um, children's suicide rates Mm -hmm. have been increasing prior COVID and, you know, also taking into consideration, you know, what are these homes looking like? Are these kids, you know, in loving, nurturing homes, you know, schools are, for some, the safest place in their lives. And, you know, I'm just really curious how, can we as a society, you know, transform in a way that we can just be there, be fully present uh, for our children? What is enrollment looking like right now for the box school? Um, we've always been really lucky with enrollment, um, and we don't do lots of marketing. I, it, word of mouth is, has been really important for us. Um, and so our enrollment has been good, even though we have lost a few families who have just said, you know, oh, we got to homeschool. Like this this device stuff, this online stuff is just not working um, with the, the way our family works. Um, and Or my child just is it's not going to work for them. Um, they need too many hands-on things. I think I'm going to try homeschooling this year. Um, 
But other than those few who have said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, we plan to come back when we're in person. It's just a personal decision for our family. Um, we have been very lucky with enrollment. And, again, I think because of our community building, we've been very conscious about, like, new families that we were concerned of. Like, how do you build relationships with kids you've never met in person? But... Um, you need to now have a relationship with them online. Like, we've been very conscious about how to do that. And, again, the Hopes and Dreams conferences that started off with the teachers talking to the students um, and then talking to the families or the caregivers. And um, So our, our, we're lucky that our enrollment is very good. And we're also lucky to have a mental health counselor, to your point, Kizzy. Um, she was one of our original three teachers in our first year, and she went back to school to become a counselor and is now um, working with our students. And she's been crucial, crucial, crucial. Um, but we've all done a collective effort as a staff to make sure that we're keeping our eye on kids. Um, we have all of the students on a uh, spreadsheet, and we put down, like, who do we have personal good relationships with? Who's missing, you know, who's missing an adult in their box? So who are we, like, really going to focus on? I think paying attention to that and what kids feel connected and to whom is important. And I also think mental health for adults and for the caregivers is really important, and I wish that were more of an emphasis in our society because the mm -hmm. kids can be okay if their families aren't okay. And I feel like our kids are mostly fine where I see adults struggling, or where I see the struggle is adults who are like, I don't know how I'm holding this together, and I don't know how much longer I can hold all of this together. It's just too much. And I agree. I have those days too where I'm just like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold too many balls in the air, um, and this is not sustainable. And I don't know, I don't know how we do that. But collectively, as a like a society, we've got to figure out how to be, how to help our families be okay. Sure. I know you've moved into the new school. I mean, you're you're there. What can, as a community, we do to support this school? What do you still need? And what's the best way to get those resources to you? I am so grateful you asked that question. Um, one of the things that we do every year so that our families don't ever have to buy school supplies, and that's one less thing they have to worry about, is that we do a school supply registry. Um, and we have that up on our website right now. It's bogsschool.org. And you'll see um, under Donate to the Bog School that we have our registry there. And this year we did it so that as like a, uh, like a wedding registry, so we don't have to mm -hmm. use Amazon if you don't want to. Um, and it has all of the things that teachers need for school supplies for their classes, but also things that we need for the new building in general. And so um, people could go on our website and donate to our registry or just donate uh, via PayPal um, to make sure that we can begin building a building fund because eventually we're going to need to build a gym um, at the new site. Um, and we have lots of initiatives that we're going to be excited about doing in the new space. So. Um, donating outright via PayPal or donating to the school supply registry would be really helpful. Wow, well, that's exciting. I mean, you know, the fact that you're you're going to do you know a gym and you've got place to grow and to do all this, and this is your forever home. I mean, I mean, yeah. that is like really exciting. 
to me, you know, to know that it's going to be there, you know. Uh, that is, I mean, I'm just like over the moon. Um, one last question. Um, <laughs> okay. How are you, you know, you know, you've been walking the halls, you've been looking at it, you've been there, this has been your baby. As you think about, you know, is there a succession plan? What are, are you hoping, you know, just like I think that one of the greatest things about Detroit Summer for us was when you and the other ones who were involved came back and you started doing it and yeah. continue it. Is that something that you would hope for, that one day you hand the keys to someone who has been a Bog School alumni? That is, without question, the absolute dream. And as a matter of fact, sometimes I designate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll say, oh, you're the next principal. Um, Because not only I'm being sort of of facetious, I mean, I definitely Mm -hmm. see traits in certain students who they just get it. They get the mission. They get Jimmy and Grace, you know, philosophies. They get what we're trying to do at the box school, um, and it means something to them. And those are the kids I'm looking at like, hmm. They're almost all of the kids I look at, all of the kids I look at, and I'm like, I I get your contribution. I don't know if you see it yet or I know that there's a contribution in there. And I mean, I just see all kinds of, you know, just – you know, I see landowners, I see community like plumbers, I see the mm-hmm. next lawyers, the social justice lawyers, I see Tony winners, I see, I mean, it's just, it runs the gamut. They're very, very, very multi-talented kids there. And then there are times where I definitely see teachers and I definitely see administrators. And it would be a dream, a dream to say, you get this, you're next. Um, mm. cannot cannot wait for that moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't even yeah. know, I don't feel like you all did that to me. Like you pointed to me and said, Julie, like very consciously, Julia, you're next. You just mm-hmm. affirmed all the time what th- th- my strengths. You just affirmed my strengths. And I just knew... Mm. A, that you all would love me no matter what. I knew you supported me no matter what. I knew I could lean on you, and I knew that you expected something to come from me. And then stuff came. You know, I I don't think that you all were like, you all have to, like, do something and name it after Grace and Jimmy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it was just... Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing to me. So I, I I on one level I can imagine how surreal and amazing it must be to see this school emerge, and because it would be amazing to me to see a kid that I just poured into just keep keep going. That's why I love you, and well, that's why I love you. And you know, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Uh, you know, and that to me, like I always tell people, when we started this, and we didn't know how it was going to be, but to see that it continues to live, 
And like I said when I started, when I look and I think legacy, I see you, I see the box center. I have conversations with Kizzy, which, uh, you know, remind me of all of this, and on into her daughter, Sophia, my granddaughter, and it lives on. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, I thank you. I mean, yeah, thank you. I mean, I can't it tell you. It means through your love. I want. I, I think it's important. I hope you feel that every day. I mean, it lives on through your love. It lives on through Mary Brown's love. I mean, the love mm-hmm. is just the love. Just, just your, your lack of shame. And Julia, I love you. Do and and just laughing at my jokes. Just, just again, just being delighted that I'm alive and I'm a person in the world. That. That does more for kids than anything else, I think, and there needs to be more people like you who are willing to do that. And so I, I just thank you for that. I, I wouldn't be the person that I am uh, without you being one of the people in my life and the other adults in Detroit Summer and my mother. And I, I just, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I, I do this because of you. And I'm so excited for Kizzy to have to be your second daughter, and so excited for Sophia as you're like you're just uh, Nana Shell is like the best grandma you could ask for. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Love is in the air. <laughs> yeah, love is love is in the air. Well, Julia, I want to thank you. I know you're busy. I know you got. And, you know, I saw the thing about, about a certain teenager, and, you know, my home has always been open <laughs> to, to your family. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it, you know. I mean, but, but you know what? I also said, you know what? She's a, she's a chip off the old blocks. <laughs> so, I mean, I am, I am <laughs> yeah, you know, so you, you hang in there. And I know your mom is smiling going like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember those days. Uh, but you yes, know, yes, thank you. I can't wait for the time for the three of us, and hopefully the four, because Sophia will be there too, to be together mm-hmm. and to laugh and talk and hug, or you know, air hugs, safe, socially distanced with masks, whatever it takes. You know, mm-hmm. I look forward to us all being together. I want to um, thank you for being. Um, with us today, my heart is full. Yeah. Mm. I'm on the verge of tears again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but mm. thank you so much, mm. Michelle, and thank you, Kizzy. Wonderful questions, and I look forward to meeting you in person. And yeah, that day will come. I'm confident, and I'm looking forward to it. Definitely, I'm looking forward to it as well. Lovely speaking to you, Julia, and your words are inspiring so much and you know so much is going on in my mind right now um just Mm. again inspired we want to thank our guest julia putnam principal of the james and grace lee bog school julia is a particularly special guest of ours as she and michelle share an intimate path the two met at detroit summer julia being the first student to sign up for the intergenerational community engagement program 
Little did they know the transformative impact the Choice Summer would have on their lives, their community, and activism. I enjoyed hearing Michelle and Julia reminisce on this impact, and I'm so in awe of the work of the Box School, a school Julia co-founded in 2013. The Box School is named after legendary Detroit activists James and Grace Lee Boggs, who are also the force behind Detroit Summer, which began in 1992. The Boggs School is certainly the school of the future, and in this age especially, it makes me wonder how can we reimagine education in our society? Be sure to follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. I'm Kizzy Joseph and hope you will join us next week when we will introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you so much for listening.